either. <clears throat> Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we have the opportunity to come and to remember the birth of your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, it is beyond our comprehension why Christ would come for us. We are sinners. We wanted nothing to do with him. We were enemies. And yet, Father, in your gracious plan, you sent Christ at the fullness of time. He came not simply to be born, not simply to heal, not simply to teach. He came to put away sin. And he did this through his death on the cross. So, Father, as we rejoice and remember and celebrate his coming into the world, may we never forget that he came to die. To die the death that we deserved. And so, Father, this morning, quiet our hearts as we continue to look at what it means to prepare for Christmas. Lord, as we were challenged last week at the life of John the Baptist to prepare through repentance and faith, Lord, today may we now, as we stand on the cusp of celebrating Christ's birth, may we now respond like John the Baptist in giving our lives fully to Christ. Father, work in our midst by your Spirit as only you can. We pray this all in Christ's precious name, pleading his blood. Amen. If you take your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew chapter 3 again, we're going to be spending a little bit of time in Matthew chapter 3, and then we're going to be moving to John chapter 3 as well. We've been considering what it means to prepare for Christmas. And again, we talked about oftentimes we think about preparation for Christmas involves getting the decorations up, getting the Christmas shopping done, making the cookies, getting the food together. And oftentimes that becomes the focus of what we are doing as we prepare for our celebration of the Lord's birth. But what John the Baptist challenges us with, what he points us to, is that true preparation for Christ comes when we prepare with repentance and faith. Remember, John came as a voice crying in the wilderness, and his message was, prepare the way of the Lord. And his message was a message of repentance and faith. We are to prepare with repentance. We looked at this last week. John's baptism was a baptism of confession of sin. It is a t- so repentance requires us to say the same thing, to agree with the fact that we are sinners in desperate need of a Savior. That then we must turn from ourselves as John confronts the religious rulers of that day who had their entire identity caught up in being a religious ruler. And then true repentance results in bearing good fruit, living a life that shows the change that we have turned from sin and we are turning to Christ. And as we turn from sin, we must then turn to Christ by looking to him 
John never called his readers to trust or to look to himself. He called them to look to Christ. Christ was greater than John. Christ was going to baptize in a way that was completely different than John's baptism. And he, he baptized with the Holy Spirit, providing transformation through that Spirit. And then Christ is the great judge before whom all will stand one day. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the praise of the Father. So what are we to do if this is how we have prepared? What is to be the course of our life after we have prepared with repentance and faith? And that is that our lives must respond by living for Christ. As the children read the story of Christ's birth from the Gospels, from Luke, we saw the shepherds there in the field, just doing nothing, minding their own business, keeping watch over their flocks, and suddenly angels come and, and step into their world and change everything about them. And they are told to go to Bethlehem. They see Christ there. They see the child wrapped in swaddling clothes, laying in a manger. And it says, what did they do as they left that place? They set about their lives after seeing the Christ who was born by being completely changed. They told everyone what they had seen. They had a new purpose. They responded to Christ's birth by seeking to live for him. Well, sadly, Christmas has become a time where people live for themselves. What do I want for Christmas? It's not Christmas unless I have this tradition or that tradition. It's not Christmas unless I have a nice juicy ham waiting for me at home. Which I, I do, which my in-laws, which would be... That may, maybe that will make a shorter sermon tonight. I, I don't know. Probably not. Christmas has been a time where we run through the rat race of making sure we get the presents, getting what we want, making sure everything is lined up exactly as we see fit. And so what we're called to remember at this time of year is not to focus upon ourselves, but to focus upon the King. To focus upon Christ. And that this time of year as we think of his coming into the world as a, as a, as a lowly child. We see him serving us. Humbling himself. Becoming obedient unto death. The response in our heart should be to be like him. In serving him with all that we are. <clears throat> So today, I'd like us to see that every day, not just at Christmas, tomorrow, the next day, January, February, June, July, September, October of next year, and every day for the rest of your lives, we can respond to the entrance of Christ into the world by giving our all to him. <clears throat> by giving our all to him. Look with me. In Matthew chapter 3, and we'll begin our reading in verse 13. Again, last week we talked and saw the ministry of John the Baptist in preparing for Christ. And then we see 
a different scene. If you remember, the scene comes up and the Pharisees came to John. And, and we sort of imagine for a moment what that would have looked like as as John was baptizing, lifting one person up, and there's a line of people coming to him, and then he lifts one person up, and, and then he looks up, and there are these Pharisees, and he rebukes them. What a different scene this time as he lowers somebody in the water, lifts them up, and looks, and there is Christ. And this is what Matthew records for us in verse, Matthew chapter 3, verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John, to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. <coughs> then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, <coughs> with whom I am well pleased. The first thing we see when we're to respond by living for Christ, is we must recognize Christ's glory. And this was a reality that John had already alluded to. He said, the one who's coming after me, I'm not even worthy to stoop down and, can't, and carry his sandals. But here he sees Christ coming to him, and he immediately recognizes him as someone whom John should not be baptizing, but whom John himself should be baptized by. He sees the glory of Christ clearly in the face of Jesus Christ. And that glory is primarily seen in his righteousness. <coughs> Notice what Jesus' response is to John when he objects. Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. What a difference in the Pharisees who feigned righteousness through their outward actions. Jesus possessed it in himself. Now it's interesting. Christ comes and he has no sin to confess of. He has nothing to repent of. And so John recognizes this, says, I, I should not be baptizing you. But yet Jesus does come to John for baptism and says that this is necessary so that he can fulfill all righteousness. That there can be a public demonstration of his righteousness. Jesus is not saying here that there is something lacking in him and that the act of baptism somehow makes him fully righteous. Rather, what Christ does here is he comes along with all the other crowds in Jerusalem and Judea He's not baptized for confession of his own sins, but he is baptized identifying himself with fallen humanity. He is baptized as the one who will be made sin for us. Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 53, 11, that out of the anguish of his soul, Christ 
he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge, shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with who? Transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many, and he makes intercession for transgressors. And the first public act of baptism that Christ does, his first, this is Christ's first public act of ministry. We see the mystery of the gospel on display. Christ, the sinless Savior, comes and is identified with sinful man. It speaks of the union we have with Christ just from the other side. We are united to Christ by faith, but Christ is united to us. Our baptism in water is a figure of us, the sinful, being united to Christ, the sinless. In Christ's baptism, it is a figure of Him, the sinless one, being united to us, the sinner. As Romans chapter 8 tells us, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. He condemned sin in the flesh. This is why the incarnation is necessary. This is why Christ came and was found in fashion as a man. He came and become, became like one of us so that he who never sinned, the righteous one, could fulfill all righteousness for us so that those who look to him could be declared no longer sinful but righteous. He took upon himself our sin, was made to be sin for us who knew no sin so that we might be made what? The righteousness of God in him. And so John sees this. John sees the righteous Christ coming. And what we see that makes abundantly clear for us is we see Christ coming and doing what we can never do. It reminds us, this time of year at Christmas reminds us that righteousness that is accepted before God can never come from yourself. You cannot Meet the mark. We have all sinned and we have all fallen short of what? The glory of God. The glory of Christ is most clearly seen in the fact that He is righteous. He meets that standard. Every other, every other religion on the face of this planet gets this wrong. Every other religion tells you that you must do you must produce, you must be righteous in order to somehow, maybe, when you get to the end of your life, you'll stand before God and hopefully these cosmic scales will show that you did more good than bad and that that somehow will be the righteousness that God accepts. The Bible's clear. God only accepts one righteousness, His own. And so John comes and sees Christ fulfilling all righteousness. 
as he's baptized by him. And so we must look to this righteous one. As the writer of Hebrews reminds us in Hebrews 1.3, he is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. He is the one who makes purification for sins. And after doing so, he sits down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This is why we must recognize that any ability to live for God flows from him through us, not from us working for him. Paul tells us in Colossians chapter 1, he says that God has chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is this, Christ where? In you, the hope of glory. It is Christ's presence within us, mediated by the Holy Spirit, that allows us to have life. If Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of what? Righteousness. Whose righteousness? Christ's. And so Paul's prayer for the Philippians in Philippians chapter 1, verse 11, is that we would be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes where? Through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. If we are to live for Christ, that life must be lived by dependence upon Christ. His righteousness working its way out in us is what changes the very course of our lives. And then we see as Christ does this and he is baptized, there is a confirmation by all three persons of the Trinity that Christ is this righteous one. We see it in the Spirit's empowering. Look with me again. Verse 16 of Matthew chapter 3. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the hot waters, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. John not only testifies of Christ's righteousness, but he testifies of how that righteousness is confirmed through the Spirit coming upon him. Now, John was already told by God himself that the one whom he saw the Spirit come and land upon would be the one that was the Christ. And here is John now witnessing this happening. It is a confirmation both of the fulfillment of God's prophecy and a confirmation publicly that Christ is the righteous one. And so we see the glory of God in Christ through the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit. This idea of the dove coming and resting on him or remaining on him showed that Christ was different than all the other prophets, including John the Baptist. 
They would have the Spirit come upon them at times and then it would remove. Christ had the Spirit always. And because of that, Christ then gives the Spirit to us. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God. He gives the Spirit without measure. And so this righteousness is confirmed through the Spirit's coming upon Christ. But that's not all. We have the Son displaying all righteousness in His baptism. We have the Spirit coming and confirming that. But we also have the Father Himself declaring the greatness of the Son. Look again with me in verse 16 and 17, as the dove came and rest upon him, verse 17, and behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. With whom I am well pleased. Here we have the Father audibly speaking from heaven and identifying Jesus of Nazareth as the Christ, the one to whom all must turn if they are to have hope. Here we have God himself saying, this is the righteous one. This is the one who pleases me. No one else meets that standard but him. This is why the call of the gospel is exclusive. This is why Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Why him? Because only he pleases the Father. There is salvation in no other name but his. Notice what is said about the Son by the Father. He says, first of all, this is his Beloved Son. His beloved Son. That is a message that we think maybe we sit on the outside of. We look at that and we say, wow, isn't it wonderful to see the love of the Father for the Son? But do you realize that by faith in Christ, you are united to have that same love for you? In John 17, Jesus says something that if it wasn't said by Jesus, it would sound blasphemous. He says, O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and those know that you have sent me, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known so that it may result in something. That the love which with, with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. When the Father says that the Son is beloved by him, the Father is saying that all those who believe in Christ are beloved by him. The Father loves all who trust in Christ just as he loves the Son. Isn't that remarkable? And so 
He loves him. Secondly, notice what he calls him. He says, this is my beloved son. There's, I think, three things we can pull from this. The first is that this is the second person of the Trinity. This is God not just becoming the son in his birth. The the son did not become the son when he was born of a virgin. He was the son from eternity. And as such, he is the one to whom is given all authority. He is the one who has authority to save And he is the one who transforms us to be sons of God. It's a remarkable passage in Hebrews chapter 2. It says, For it was fitting that he, Christ, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation, I'm sorry, the father, would make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them what? Brothers. Saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. Isn't that remarkable? Christ Calls you his kin, his brother. When we think of this child coming into the earth as a lowly baby, that is our spiritual elder brother coming to provide this wonderful hope. So we see. Christ's glory and his righteousness in the Spirit's empowering and the Father's declaration. Is this not a Christ that is worthy of your all? And so we respond to by living for Christ by recognizing his glory. But then secondly, and this is where I want us to turn over very quickly to John chapter 3. As we see the glory of Christ... The final response of our lives should be to exalt that name. We are to exalt Christ's name. What does it look like to pursue Christ's glory rather than your own? What does it look like to live for him and him alone? It looks like John's response here to Christ in John chapter 3. John chapter 3, we'll begin our reading in verse 22, and we'll read through the end of the passage. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. So John 3 begins with Christ's conversation with um, Nicodemus. We have the, one of the most well-known passages of Scripture, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but will have eternal life. We have the, the reference of the necessity for the new birth. And then John has that conversation, it's record, or Jesus has that conversation, he goes into, in one sense, 
John the Baptist's backyard. He's gone into his territory and he's doing the same thing John the Baptist is doing. And so we see that. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim because the water was plentiful there. And people were coming and being baptized for John had not yet been put in prison. Now you can imagine, here's John's disciples and they, all of Judeans and, and uh, the Jordan area had been coming to him. Now here's Jesus. And guess who people are going to see now? Not John, but Jesus. And there's a discussion between John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they come to John and they say, look, Rabbi, he who was with you, across the Jordan to whom you bore witness. Look, he is baptizing. Everyone's going to him. All are going to him. And so the implication here is you're you're fading and your influence is fading. It's waning. Maybe, Maybe you need to do some more tweets and be more of a social media influencer. Maybe you need to make a new TikTok. Get some endorsements. John answers, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given to him from heaven. Boy, that, that, that should be a, I could preach a whole sermon on that one right there. How we need to grab a hold of that as the way that we live so comparatively in our lives. So-and-so has this and I don't have it. This this is the key to cutting covetousness out of your life. You don't receive anything apart from the Father. And he is always good to his children, is he not? But I digress. Verse 28. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ. But I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom, the friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from heaven is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Hallelujah! But that's not the end of the verse. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. John the Baptist lived to exalt Christ's name. 
I think we can learn from John's example as to how we can respond to Christ coming to the earth by living for his name. And it begins with rejoicing in Christ's work. Notice what John says. He's not concerned or sad with the fact that his influence is declining. He is more overjoyed that Christ is exalted. That becomes the great joy of John's life. What do we sing at Christmas time? What's one of the favorite Christmas hymns? Joy to the world. What is that joy found in? It's found in seeing that Christ is magnified. How can we sing joy to the world if we make it about us? We don't bring joy. Only Christ does. And so we must seek for him to be exalted. Notice what what John says here. He says, I rejoice greatly when I hear the bridegroom's voice. He gives this example of, of standing as the best man and as he stands there, he's, he's not upset that he's not getting all the attention at the wedding. Who is he happy to have all the attention? The bridegroom. And then notice what he says at the end of verse 29. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. It's full. It's fulfilled. Only Christ can bring real joy. Only Christ can bring real joy. And it's so important for us as we walk through a world that is broken by sin, that is constantly screaming at us that the world needs hope. We have the hope. I know that I know that the holidays can be immensely difficult for some people. I know, I know that possibly in, in some of your lives, you aren't looking forward to Christmas. Reminds you of loved ones gone by. by. Reminds you of heartache and difficulty in your life. And at those times, Christmas, if we truly catch what it's really focusing on, can be a source of eternal joy because that joy is not found in those things. Our joy is found in the Lord. We can have full joy in Christ. This is what true faith is. It is joy in the Lord. What does Paul tell the church at Thessalonica? Rejoice in the Lord always. And then he repeats it again. I say what? Rejoice. How can you have full joy this year? It's by looking to Christ. So we exalt Christ's name by him being the true joy of our lives. Listen, if you really love something... It's not a problem for you at all to talk about it with somebody else, is it? No, you have no problem. We have no problem talking about our favorite restaurants, our favorite foods. I mean, I talk about ham all the time. Why don't we do that about Jesus? 
I think it's because he's truly not the one who fulfills our joy. So we exalt Christ's name by rejoicing in his work. We secondly exalt Christ's name by diminishing our own name. <clears throat> this is countercultural today, isn't it? Notice what John says there in verse 30. And notice how he phrases this. It's not as though it's a possibility, right? He doesn't say, he should increase and I should decrease. I think that that is how many of us view this verse and the way we live our lives. Oh, I should make sure Christ is increasing and I should be decreasing. But we realize we don't do that, right? And so we approach it that way. But what does John say? Is it a, is it a possibility? He what? He must. He must increase. I must decrease. Religion is often focused on making ourselves appear clearly. Notice what Jesus says about the Pharisees and the Sadducees. When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. They love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be what? Seen by others. And then Jesus says, you know what? They've got their reward. You want to be seen by others? You can do it. And you'll get your reward. The church at Corinth had a problem with an obsession with celebrity. I was baptized by Paul. I was baptized by Apollos. I'm just a follower of Jesus. Those are the things that were said. And Paul comes and, and comes to them and says, Listen, who is Paul? Who's Apollos? They're nothing but servants. I decided to know nothing among you except what? Jesus Christ and him crucified. If we are going to live our lives for the glory of Christ, it means that we must disappear. We should live for his fame, not our own. And the final thing we see in exalting Christ's name is pointing all to him. We see this in verses 31 through 36. Here we have the gospel in a nutshell. If we are truly living for Christ, we see his glory, we want others to know that glory, and we do that by sharing the gospel. We proclaim the person of the gospel, which is Jesus Christ. He who comes from above is above all. He was of the earth, belongs to the earth, and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. Verse 35, the Father loves the Son and has given how many things into His hand? All things. You realize what that means? It means everything from eternity past to the time present to eternity in the future. Jesus owns it all. He's not just a, 
uh, a provincial ruler of a big state. He's not a governor. He's not even a president. He's not a king. He is far greater. He is Lord of all. And so we need to not shy away from that reality. Then we need to, secondly, proclaim the truth of the gospel. Notice what he says in verse 33. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. Listen, we live in a world today that wants to question the truth of the gospel, right? Everywhere around us it's questioned. And we must stand boldly and proclaim that this is the truth. Don't believe the lie. The devil began by tempting Adam and Eve with what? A lie. Has he changed? He's still lying. And people are still buying it. Even God's own people are buying it. We've got to set our seal to the truth as we turn to Christ that He is the way, the truth, the life. Thirdly, we need to proclaim the transformation of the gospel. Look in verse 34. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. Look, it is impossible, it is impossible to know Christ and to have the Spirit without it radically altering your life. If your life is not radically altered, then there's good question to wonder whether or not you truly have the Spirit. Sharing the gospel is not just simply sharing with people that they can make a decision, put a ticket to heaven in their back pocket, and then live however they want to. The gospel calls with its first words for repentance. And the final thing we have to do is we share this truth. We proclaim the person, Jesus Christ. We proclaim the truth. In spite of the lies of the world, we proclaim the fact that this is going to change you if you truly believe this. The final thing we must do is proclaim the response of the gospel. And we see this in verse 36. You have to believe in the Son. The message of the gospel is turn from trusting anything else but Christ. Trust Him alone. That means then that you're repenting of dependence on your works, your goodness, your church attendance, your church membership, your baptism, your good deeds. You repent of them, realizing they are not righteousness, only Christ is. And you trust fully in Him. And there's a wonderful promise. Whoever, whoever believes in the Son has what? Eternal life. 
But the message of the gospel, the response of the gospel, is also one that we say those who repent and believe have eternal life. But there are consequences for those who reject this message. Notice the last words of verse 36. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. This is the message that we must take to the world around us. It is a message that exalts Christ's name. Listen, it's not about us. It's not about us. And frankly, if we were to get out of the way, it would change our thinking about so many things. When the world derides Christianity, it's not about us. They're deriding our Christ. When people reject the message, they're not rejecting us, they're rejecting Christ. We need to make clear who Jesus is. And we need to make clear that we are nothing. But Christ is everything. As we point all to him. Jesus in his ministry said that he is going to be lifted up for all the world to see. And as we consider this time of year where we think of Christ coming as a baby in a manger, we cannot help but look to the Christ who hangs on a cross. He came into the world for that purpose. Maybe this afternoon, maybe this evening, tomorrow perhaps, you're going to have the opportunity to point others to Christ. Will you do it? Will you focus on the true meaning of Christmas? Christ come to save us from our sins on the cross. If you haven't prepared for that, you truly have not prepared for Christmas. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we thank you for your word and the truth we find in it. And Lord, we thank you for Christ. What a wonderful hope we have in him as our Savior. Father, take these words, convict And call us to live for him. May we repent of our sins. May we turn to Christ. And may we pursue his glory in all things. We pray this in Christ's precious name.